Phase World Podcast helps independent creators live their creative and financial freedom. I'm your host, Fei Wu, and I'll be taking you through a series of interviews with creators from around the world who are living life on their own terms. Each episode is packed with tactics, nuggets you can implement, origin stories to make listening productive and enjoyable. We're not only focused on the more aspirational stories, but relatable ones as well. We also have non-interview-based mini-series releasing throughout the year to help deep dive into topics such as freelancing, marketing, even indie filmmaking that will benefit creators like you. Show notes, links, and ways to connect with the guests are available on phaseworld.com. Now, on to the show. Hi there, this is Fei Wu from Face World Podcast. Hey, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. I have a very special uh, live stream episode, which I'm repurposing for the purpose of Face World. And if you're listening to this show for the first time, uh, welcome. I love having new listeners and the ability to connect with you guys on demand like this, uh, you know, has been a dream come true since 2014. So it's been six years. Doesn't matter, you know, where you're listening to this, Man, it feels so special. I can't quite explain it. And today I have more than one guest on the show. Their names are Rebecca Tosic, uh, Dr. BJ Miller, Gustavo Serafini, and myself. This was a live stream we had uh, quite some time ago, but I decided to repurpose this because there's so much goodness. Here's how it happened. So Dr. BJ Miller and I have been friends for some time and we got back in touch and we're working some exciting projects together. Anyway, uh, he shared a link to Rebecca's article, I believe on New York Times, about disability and, uh, and disability studies and body neutrality. I was so fascinated. I read the entire article and two days later, my other friend, really good friend, Gustavo Sarfini, who appeared previously here on Face World, and also send me an email to say, Faye, you know, I never really asked for anything like this before, but if you're going to interview Rebecca, here's her article. I want to be in on it. So I just found that moment to be so beautiful that uh, all the worlds start to collide and I was caught in the middle of it in a really sweet way. So Rebecca, BJ, Gustavo, um, each have their own um, different type of disability and um, to be honest, I really struggle to talk about it because they're my friends and I have never really seen them that way. And we've done so much together, guys. I can't even explain to you um, why it hurts sometimes when I see other people getting so fixated on their bodies, their disabilities, and make them talk about these things exclusively. Instead of focusing on the things they're just so incredible at. And they're incredible people. Um, before all of that. So let me give you a brief introduction. Rebecca Tosic is a PhD. She lives in Kansas City. She's a writer, she's a teacher, and um, she specializes in creative nonfiction and disability studies. She has led workshops and presentations at the University of Michigan, University of Kansas, and Davidson College on disability representation, identity, and community. And she runs this lovely, lovely Instagram platform called sitting underscore pretty, where she crafts these mini memoirs to contribute uh, nuance to the collective narrative being told about disability in, in our culture. 
She lives in a tiny old house with her a fussy family of tender-hearted snugglers, and she has a very young son, a loving husband, and you can learn more about her at RebeccaTosic.com. And Rebecca, by the way, is R-E-B-E-K-A-H. Tosic is T-A-U-S-S-I-G. And BJ Miller, MD, is probably not very new to uh, the core audience here at Phase World, but it may very well be new uh, to you. So um, BJ is a doctor who founded his company in 2020 named Metal Health, uh, which is a consultation service here for you in sickness and in health. So you don't need to be experiencing a crisis of care to benefit from a conversation with BJ and the people that he collaborate with to serve you and and to help you and your family. BJ has practiced and taught in major settings, including home, hospital, clinic, and residential care facility. In his work, he draws upon his personal experience with disability and his undergraduate studies in art history as much as his medical education. And he speaks all over the country, internationally, on the themes of living well in the face of illness and death. He has been profiled in the New York Times, interviewed by Oprah, um, Tim Ferriss, Carissa Tibbet, and co-author the book, A Beginner's, A Beginner's Guide to the End. You can learn more about mental health at mentalhealth.com. Again, Meadow is spelled as M-E-T-T-L-E. And you can also follow him on Twitter, BJ Miller, MD as well. Last but not least, Gustavo Serafini, a dear friend of mine. He is an entrepreneur and co-founder of Pure Audio Video, a company based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, that specializes in designing and integrating home theaters, cinemas, automation, and security systems for luxury homes. He's originally from Brazil. His family moved to the States when he was still a baby, born with PFFD, a rare condition. Um, Gustavo had to learn how to walk and live like other kids at a very young age. He studied Buddhism and attended law school to leading a company as a successful entrepreneur today. So it was such an honor and privilege to put these three minds in the same room with me. And they did not make me feel little or different. Um, They make me feel very special. I felt very included and highly educated by this conversation. I cannot believe how long it took for all of us to get together. And I'm just so grateful that you are sitting here uh, witnessing this to happen. I gotta tell you, this was such a special moment in my life. In fact, every conversation is with every guest. I'm not gonna lie, but this one in particular, it just echoing in my mind. And whenever I need a little bit of a pick me up, I will listen to this. And I love watching this. I love watching everyone. If you're into videos, check us out on uh, Face World Media uh, right there on YouTube, right there, you know, and we produce content there on a regular basis. Um, Beyond live streams, we also share a ton of videos on creative entrepreneurship, live streaming, Zoom, virtual meetings, and really getting your ideas out there, living the life that you've always wanted and, and make contributions and make a difference in other people's lives. So, Um, Definitely, if you want to check out the video there, you can meet everybody. I have heard from other sources that everybody seemed super adorable, cute, and handsome, and everything. So definitely check us out. Hey, without further ado, thank you so much for listening. I cannot wait to welcome you to this very episode.
gathered here and today's topic is on something I've never, ever done before on this podcast. And it's very meaningful. It is on, you know, disability and body neutrality. And uh, I thought about the intro and it was really, for some reason, I really struggle with this as well, because we're all in front of Zoom and we're, we kind of are all the same, right? So, um, so thank you so much for, for being here with me, guys. I can't wait for the stories to un unfold. So, um, all right. So to, do I have to throw out the first question, I guess? <laughs> so, it's so funny, before, before we went live, everybody was talking and I started talking and now nobody's talking. All right, so Rebecca, we all started with you because what happened was uh, BJ shared an article that, that was of yours that published on Times. I, I started reading it and I realized, wow, that's really fascinating because I've been doing some of the things wrong in my life. So I'm here to learn, I think. And um, I want other people to open up and, and hear this as well. And then at the same time, Gustavo, for the first time ever to say, Fave, you're going live with Rebecca and BJ. I want to be there. So that's why we're all here. So uh, yeah, Rebecca, could you maybe talk to us a little bit about your journey and what made you want to publish that book? And I don't, I shouldn't be the only person asking questions to actually pretend I'm not even here. Thank you for, for being the facilitator of bringing us together for the, in the, into this space, because this is pretty special already. Um, I'm really happy to be here with all of you. Um, yeah, so a few things about me, I guess. Um, I, I've been disabled since I was three, so most of my memory-making life. Um, I had cancer when I was really young um, and got my first wheelchair when I was six. Um, and I spent most of my life um, at, in this disabled body without having language or um, a community to really process what that meant to me. Um, and it wasn't until much later, well into my 20s, that I started reading um, actually academic work, um, disability studies that uh, kind of started offering this framework and sent me on this track of rethinking my whole life, like what, what my body meant to me and how it fit into the world and how it fit into my family and um, just kind of rethinking um, a lot of experiences and, and, um, and my identity essentially. Um, so I started when I was in graduate school, I started uh, this tiny little platform on Instagram where I was writing, I guess what we call, or I started calling mini memoirs because um, Instagram space is very tiny. So I um, was kind of prompted to rethink a memory or process a moment that uh, I had experienced and started writing about just living life in this particular body in a world that um, doesn't have a ton of representation of that body or seems to oversimplify that body and really wanted to get at the, the, the raw, complicated um, experience of that. And so started writing about it there. And um, I've been doing that for this was like five years now, which is time blows my mind. But um, uh, eventually that space started to feel, um, the limitations of that space started to feel even more confining. And I, I felt my muscles needing to stretch out beyond that tiny platform. Um, so that's where the book came from, is it's sort of um, unfurling from that space and thinking about the themes that showed up on my online space, but with more room. Um, and, uh, and I think more time to settle in and chew on those ideas and, and hopefully 
the book is is something that will continue to unfurl as well. I don't think the book is like the end of that. Um, if anything, I hope that it just prompts more conversations like the one um, planned for today, uh, that this is just something for us to think through as a community and what our, what our bodies um, mean to us and can be and, and what else they might prompt us to imagine for the world around us. So um, those are some things about me. Uh, and then, and then I guess we've got some other, um, interesting human beings on this screen as well, that I would love to hear from, um, some of that background information too. Gentlemen. Gustavo, do you want to go next, bud? Or shall I jump in? Go for it. Go for it. Or, you know what? I'll go next and then we'll, we'll save the best for last. Um, <laughs> Good. So it, it's an honor to be here. Um, a little bit about me and my background. So when I was two, uh, uh, well, when I was I was born with PFFD, which is proximal focal femoral deficiency. So basically, uh, you know, one arm um, is a shortening of the femur, and my right hip was fused. Uh, in 1976, there were only about 12 cases that had been documented. So, you know, my parents. Um, my dad was, it was a doctor and he, you know, researched, should we move to Japan? Should we move to Canada? And this whole adventure, we ended up coming to the US um, so that I could get treated, uh, figure out how I can best, you know, adapt to the world and, and, and live in it. And thankfully, um, you know, it's, it's been an interesting experience. Um, I, never really had a lot of uh, friends with disabilities. It was always just kind of, you know, normal kids growing up and doing my thing. And uh, I think what I tried to bring to the table is just to show people focusing on ability rather than disability, right? This is what I can do. This is what I'm capable of. This is why I should fit in with you. Um, went to college, went to graduate school, law school, you know, I'm a, I'm a recovering academic, as they say. And for the last 15 years, I've been a co-owner in a business. Well, beautiful. Well, I'll jump in. So I'm BJ Miller. I, um, I, I am an amputee since I was 19, from electrical injuries in college, but I'd been around disability my whole life. Um, my mother had polio as a child and then post-polio syndrome. So since, so she walked with crutches and used a brace for my early, early childhood. And then from the time I was about seven or eight, she was using a wheelchair increasingly. And so much of my childhood, I was, my mother and I are very close and much of my childhood was spent in, um, just watching the world bounce off of my mom and learning a lot about the world and, and being very both often moved by, uh, by what I was seeing and also very troubled. And it just brought up for me um, big questions at a young age around identity, worth, belonging, uh, transformation. Um, and I couldn't help but wonder watching my mom navigate the planet and watching, knowing her, how it was always framed that she was the she was the one who was lacking something, the disability. She was the one who, she was the anomaly. Something was wrong with her. That was all the language. That's how she was treated, et cetera. 
in the best case scenario back in the day, this was before the Americans with Disabilities Act, which I think helped our country begin to see disability issues through a civil rights lens, um, which is, there's a lot to say about that. But be, before that, it was if you got any attention around it, generally it was pity um, or, or sort of repulsion. Um, and those are related, I think. But anyway, and then I, I, became, I became disabled myself as an amputee, lost both legs and one arm in electrical burns and, and joined the ranks myself. And then, so this became increasingly personal, these kinds of questions. Who am I now? What's my worth? What can I have to offer? And all throughout, of course, the, 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 the thing that I had gained from my early childhood was that disability is not, first of all, it's framed in reference to some other something else, some standardized person who I don't, I don't know who these standardized people are, but it was you know, that your identity is framed by someone else. And that disability at best was something that one would overcome. Uh, and that always struck me as sort of a little off. And then I really, when I was in these shoes, it became to be clear why it was so off. That these, there's two, I can't overcome. This is my daily life. And nor would I want to. It's such a rich field. I've learned so much from being in these shoes. So altogether, I'm, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but altogether it became clear that no, this was something I wanted to work with, not overcome, not put behind me. And then I went into medicine as a place where I could exercise some of these lessons I was learning. So not only did I feel come to feel that disability was not only something that was tolerable in the world, but it's something actually pretty important in the world for anybody uh, to, to ponder. And I think I, I do think disability studies and this lens that we're, gonna, we're describing here has a lot to offer the, the world in general, able-bodied, disabled, whatever. So sorry, I'll stop rambling there. There's a little bit of early thoughts, but that's what I've been trying to do and exercise in my work as a palliative care physician, that we don't fix ourselves, we work with what we have. We don't, we don't fix it, we, we use it, we work with it. Something like that. Yeah, BG, you've never ever rambled once. Um, yeah. I know you mentioned that a few times. I, I do, okay. Which is pretty incredible. I'm looking at two gentlemen, Gustavo and BJ, both are so good at not mansplaining. Uh, it just, it's incredible. And thank you for sharing your stories. I did practice the story several times, but I, I have to admit that I really struggle for some reason to, uh, you know, introduce you because I feel like I, I, I've exchanged several emails with Rebecca about our favorite TV show, Pen15. And uh, immediately felt like, you know, she's a sister. I felt like I know all of you so well. And I started to see all of you with a very different lens for some reason. Like the emotion really starts to change. But I think what really triggered this conversation through, you know, BJ's first share of Rebecca's article and Gustavo and I really open up about PFFD for the first time in, in us knowing each other in three years and volunteered to talk about it. it just felt so powerful because it was a territory I felt like I couldn't really get into. I shouldn't. I should only be invited to talk about it. And as a result, I talked to other content creators who frankly feel like, oh, wow, I, I, I don't know how to um, ask these questions as a podcaster uh, as a YouTuber, I, I'm really afraid I'm going to offend someone. Therefore, maybe I, inaction is the way to go. But I really want to break that barrier because um, I feel like I, I much rather learn uh, what I'm doing right or wrong. So, 
Well, maybe there's a one point to jump in and some basics on there, Faye. I mean, mm. from where I sit, it'd be interesting to hear everybody's thoughts on this, but I mean, one, sort of some of the basics around languaging around disability, I, I, just in terms of almost like an etiquette. I think the, the state, the standard now is, you know, a per person with a disability. So there's a person first, that I'm not just framed by disability. I'm a person, I happen to be disabled, I happen to have brown hair, blah, blah, you know, among other traits. So that's, there's a nice little basic lead in and a lot flows from that, that kind of languaging. Um, you know, handicapped has, has sort of somewhat fallen out of favor. I'm not even sure where the source of that word is. Crippled certainly is out of favor, except oftentimes I've heard disabled folks refer to themselves as crips, you know, it's sort of a fun way to kind of own it. And it's a, our club, you know, you can join a club, but you got to go get something's going to something's gonna happen to you first and then you can come talk to us. But um, so there's some playfulness around that. But like any group, I think, or any person, and this is another thing with disability is, I suppose no group of people is homogenous, really, if you look closely enough. But certainly in the disabled world, it, it, we have much in common. And a lot of that, I think a lot of what we have in common is not so much the function and dysfunctions of our body per se, but how the world treats us, that seems to me to be the bond among folks I know who are living with disability, which is interesting because it points out that so much of the hardship of disability is, isn't the disabilities it's, itself, it's the projection of others and this feeling that the world is excluding you. The built environment before the ADA, you know, there were no guaranteed curb cuts, you had no guaranteed access to services, et cetera. Uh, so literally the world was not made for you. It's, it's demeaning, it's debilitating. Um, so that's some thoughts. And then I will one more share and then let's, uh, I'll, I'll shut up. But pity, I mean, I've mentioned this a little bit. Pity is really to watch yourself. Faye. If you feel pity welling up in you, well, okay. You know, you can't control your emotions. I mean, that's okay. But that's really cause for, that's something that you need to examine. Because if you're feeling sorry for me, it's you're projecting something onto me. I don't feel sorry for myself. Mm -hmm. So it's a, if you're feeling pity, it's usually a call about anything. I would say it's a call for you to look inward. Um, and it may be a normal response in some ways, but it also means you got some homework to do about mm -hmm. checking yourself. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a good point. I, uh... I think that like Faye, I love, I love that you open with that vulnerability of sharing that anxiety that you have. Um, it's admirable to me that you would, would um, kind of open with that. And also it's relatable because I relate to that in other, in other contexts too. Like any, the, the fear of um, offending someone or making someone uncomfortable. Um, it's in some ways it's like a, in some ways it's a, it's a good impulse because we want to care for each other and we don't want to harm each other. But also I think sometimes it ends up um, perpetuating harm because it keeps us separated from each other. And, um, and we don't um, kind of avert our gaze or try to gloss over it or, and there's an erasure in that. And so I really, I really appreciate you um, acknowledging that. And I think, you know, like BJ said, um, everybody in this community is different. So of course people will have different feelings about that, but I think by and large, um, acknowledging uh, that sort of discomfort, but also stepping forward anyways, and and leading with with openness and curiosity and and a, and a desire to learn. I think um, it's hard to go wrong with that. Um, and if you do, I, I think if there is um, kind of moments of discomfort for either party, I think 
um, that's sort of the toll that we pay for trying to get closer to each other and trying to um, figure this out together. There's a messiness with it. And I think acknowledging that that can be messy and that there can be things that um, like language that might be used that someone's like, well, I don't, that's not a term that I appreciate. Um, that's maybe um, recognizing that that's not necessarily about you in that moment. It's just about the learning process, you know? And um, even like the language thing that BJ mentioned, it, it's interesting because um, I think that's just like an example of how complicated this can be because um, I think person first language is definitely part of a movement that we're moving towards in the disability community. But I've also heard of the say the word, um, kind of leaning towards say the word. It's uh, like, um, I think it's even a hashtag people use like say the word. And it means um, that people, some people like to identify as a as disabled person instead of person with a disability. And that part of sort of claiming that as an identity. And like BJ mentioned, some people are claiming the word cripple and, but who gets to use that in what context? Like it's, it's a complicated, messy thing. Um, and I think sometimes we have this feeling like we need to know all the rules before we proceed. And that's just impossible. That's just, um, that's just not, I don't think that that is a possible way to proceed, but proceeding with care and curiosity and acknowledgement and um, honesty, I think that is possible. Like that's a way to move forward. So um, I, don't, I appreciate that. that. Yeah. I mean, I agree with everything you all said. And again, Faith, thank you so much for taking this bold step forward and opening up this space. Um, I just took a, a really interesting workshop recently on um, sonder. Do you all know what that word means? It's it's from the person who invented it is, is uh, from the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And the word sonder means um, to recognize that everyone else around you um, is a whole person with insecurities, flaws, dreams, hopes, and it's just the ability to try to see the other person as a, as, a, as a complete human being who shares many of the same things that we share. So, so instead of, you know, as long as we're approaching people with curiosity, like you said, Rebecca, I mean, that, that's exactly what it is. Curiosity, I wanna learn, I wanna understand how you see the world, how you are, you know, who you are, what you care about, I mean, anytime I meet anybody new, and a lot of people are like this, there's, there's social awkwardness. You're getting used to the other person. You're getting to know the other person. That's all okay. It's, it's, it's like what you said, it's the messy part of being human. Um, I try to start with when people look at me like with pity or with, you know, oh, are, are you in pain? Or that, you know, I, I try to, reframe that into uh, let's start with with curiosity or hope or inspiration because at least that's a better starting point for you to not fear me and start to see me as another human being just like I'm trying to see you as another human being. So so beautifully said because this conversation triggered a lot of thoughts like early childhood thoughts that um, I think there's also a cultural element um, to me as well. For example, in China, you're supposed to uh, help, you're taught to help 
people with certain disabilities, help them cross the street and things like that. And I think in a way I was conditioned to do it. And as soon as I got here, my friends will pull me away to say, you need to ask for permission first. So that was something uh, really interesting for me to learn. And growing up, I also felt like there's, they were a couple of kids in a huge school who had disabilities who were in uh, wheelchairs. And I always was the one who stood up to say, if you got a problem with her, well, you got a problem with me. And there I was, I was 5'4 and like 110 pounds. And maybe that's why later on I studied uh, martial arts for 20 years. But I always, you know, for some reason, it, it just, to me, like at the time, I didn't fully understand that feeling. And, and now as an adult, I feel like there's so much to process because like you said, Rebecca, like, but, you know, I, I assume you're younger than I am. And, you know, in the, you know, in the 80s and even the early 90s as a kid growing up, I really didn't have a lot of mentors or people did not talk about. It, it was a topic almost to be avoided or, you know, so I, uh, I'm really grateful to, to be able to learn so much so quickly in this conversation. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I think you're right. I think it is something that people feel a strong of, of, uh, avoidance toward, uh, in my experience, um, or have. I think there is momentum behind that, like uh, discomfort and avoidance. And I'm curious about that. Um, and I'm curious what um, folks with me here think about that too. Um, because to me, my experience as a disabled person is so very ordinary. It's like just the most basic human experience. There's nothing really that um, dramatic about it to me. And, um, and I think part of that is growing up that way, right? Like I think um, disability is experienced in different ways for different people. And sometimes um, getting a disability later in life might change that. But for me, um, it just feels an incredibly, incredibly ordinary. And I think a lot of what um, I came to process as I got older was recognizing how so often, um, what made me start to feel different was, was, um, these checks that I was getting externally from other people, letting me know that there was something, um, something different happening here, something sad or something, or something extra inspirational, just something that was different. And there was that distance. And I didn't feel that until other people were kind of like, I don't know, putting out those vibes toward me um, and signaling that to me. Um, but so I think there is, uh, I think there is um, a discomfort. And BJ, when I was listening to your TED talk in particular, I started thinking um, or sort of seeing this alignment with, with a theory that I've had in the past. And I wonder if you would think this is too, um, too dramatic or taking it anything too far, but in some ways it seems to me that, that the aversion to looking at and engaging with disability, like with eyes wide open, sometimes might have to do with um, fundamentally like an aversion to death, uh, that fear of the, the, a body's frailties or the fact that a body is going to age. Um, and, and I don't know that that would ever be like in somebody's mind directly, but there seems to be something almost guttural in that, um, that fear, um, that it's personal. So I don't know what do you, what, what you guys think about that, but. Wow. I, I totally believe that. I think it is, um, there's a natural, um, 
concern in, from people. And it's, it's some of it, I think, is conditioned and learned. Um, but I think some of it is, is older, more ancient than that. And I think it has to do very much with what you're describing. Our, our physical presence represents loss on some level to people. Loss, I mean, we can, we can spend a lot of time reframing that. But on some level, I don't know that that's avoidable. Um, and, it's, and it's loss that could happen to them too. So it's very different from say, uh, you know, race or ethnicity, things, other things that you're sort of born into, but um, <clears throat> especially with an acquired disability, uh, I think we represent vulnerability and vulnerability scares the pants off of people. And not, and, and to give those, to give us all credit, you know, that is a visceral neurological neurohormonal response. We are wired to run away from death. We are wired to feel uncomfortable around vulnerability and to try to strengthen ourselves around that. Those are some basic impulses in human beings. So I think a lot of what we bump up in, against is exactly what you're saying, Rebecca, is that we, we represent that vulnerability and therefore we confront people with their own. And that's unnerving. Um, and it also points back to so much of the homework for the population at large. And this is where self-awareness is so key. Self-awareness is so key. And that's why back to Faye, you owning your awareness around this is, 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 so, is the thing. When I bump into people, as long as there's some basic respect and they're owning their position, then, that's, then it's off to the races. We can go anywhere together. Um, when they're posturing and all that stuff, it's, it makes me kind of, I just kind of laugh. I think, I think part of the response from me as a disabled person, when people project pity onto me, I, part of the reason I hate that is because I would look at folks and I'm like, what, you think you got it all together just because you have four limbs? Like, really? You have no problems. Your life's just easy peasy. Everything's working out fine. I mean, like, honestly, I, of course, because that, that's not really true for anyone. Um, so when I meet that energy, I know that someone hasn't taken the time to look at their own vulnerabilities, their own relationship to mortality, et cetera. So it's a little bit of a tell. And the tell is mostly that they're not looking at themselves and no one has all their shit together. We're just more a little bit more obviously represent that sort of more obviously. Does that sound right to you guys? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, for sure. I think one thing that makes it interesting to me to think about, and I, I wonder how this piece fits in, is my siblings when I was growing up. And Gustavo, you have, a, you have a, uh, siblings that grew up with you with your disability as well. So I'd be curious to know how this compares to you. Um, but it's interesting that um, I'm the youngest of six kids in my family. And so they grew up like right next to me in, in, with this disability. They were right there, like um, especially my siblings that are just a couple of years older than me. Um, and the, their reaction to my body um, is unlike any other relationship that I've ever had in my life um, growing up right next to me. And I think part of what might be happening there is like BJ, you were talking about um, our, our bodies almost being like, almost like being like symbols of something. Um, and, and I think that the closeness, I think kind of, if you would look at it like almost like a study, I think the closeness between my, me and my siblings is, is um, maybe capturing, um, I'm, I'm just thinking about this for the first time. So this is kind of clunky, coming out kind of clunky, but capturing like an authentic relationship to a disabled body in some ways 
that you like lose that shorthand symbolism. And it's just like what it actually feels like to, to grow next to this disabled body. Um, and suddenly it's just another body in the room. Um, and, and it has frailties, but not necessarily inherently or fundamentally different than the frailties of any human body, really, when we start looking at it, right? Um, so I don't know how that compares, Gustavo, to your experience growing up with siblings and their responses to your body or not. I'm just, that's just my experience. It, it's, it's similar and different. So I have a younger brother. He's, he's three years younger. We were always very close. Um, what... I guess the thing that I'm, what I'm most grateful for um, with him is he's, he was, you know, he's athletic. He's, you know, six feet tall. He was a high school basketball player. And what, what was really amazing about growing up with him is I love sports too. And he was able over time through, I think, imagination and observation to help me right? If you're playing basketball, I know you can't move your body like I can, but why don't you try this? Why don't you do this instead? Why don't you navigate these obstacles in this other way? And, and that was, you know, there's been very, very few people in my life who've had that ability to imagine and to help and to see um, kind of the environment in a different way. So that, that was my biggest takeaway growing up with him. Just that I don't know if that's, you know, empathy, compassion, all those things together. But it was it was incredibly uh, special to have that relationship with someone. And Gustavo, now he has three little kids, and you told me a week ago that you're learning a lot from dealing with children. Uh, you know, their filters being applied, but they're still going to ask you these questions. You say we're able to learn a lot from that. Could you talk talk about that a little bit? So I think, so growing up, you know, if, if kids um, approached me in a disrespectful manner, you know, you'd make up some story to scare them off and, and get them away. Um, now, I think growing up with, with, and being there with Marcelo's kids, they ask questions, like so many questions, right? And, and it's all, how come you were born with one arm? You know, why do you have to wear a prosthesis when you walk? And how come you don't, you know, why do you do this? And they're coming at it from a place of, of curiosity and love. And I have grown a lot more comfortable. Like when you said, Faye, you know, I'm, I'm scared of, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to say anything I shouldn't say. It's actually helped me tremendously to be that much more comfortable with however it is that other people see me. So it's been, it's been a transformative process. Mm-hmm. And, and one, one thing I want to clarify, I feel like we, we are all different. I think when, um, for me personally, I, I, there's definitely a sense of fascination, uh, be completely honest, of a body that's different than mine. And granted, like everybody's body is different than mine. And I had a lot of fear growing up too. Um, you know, I, I will bring that story up at, at another point. But a week ago, Gustavo said that, hey, Faye, let's hop on a call to, to prep for this. And one thing we talked about was when we met for the first time in a Seth Godin environment, by the way, this is being streamed to the official LTMBA group as well, that he felt so comfortable in front of 300 people. And so I said, well, 
what didn't make you feel, what kind of situation wouldn't make you feel comfortable. And Gustavo, if you remember, you talked about eye contacts and avoiding eye contacts and, and um, you know, people are walking away from you. And believe it or not, I couldn't believe this has been, this has then happened to me in the past few days as I moved from, you know, the Boston uh, area to now Western Mass, I had no idea how, you know, 40 minutes made a huge difference. In the past few days, I brought my mom to go grocery shopping. I noticed like, I'm not kidding. Like our presence probably tripled the Asian population in this particular area. I actually, for the first time living in Massachusetts for nearly 20 years, I felt uncomfortable because I noticed people where they were staring at me and uh, everything. As I'm walking back with bags of groceries, I noticed like these, you know, people will turn and look at me until I get closer to my car. And men had a very different reaction than women. And some of them looked, frankly, a little bit scared. And uh, I was like, does this have to be to do with like COVID? So I started creating all these different uh, questions and imaginations in my head. But Gustavo, I felt like I, I, you know, I still, now I worried a little bit, like going grocery shopping becomes a very different experience to me. Um, I felt a sense of protection towards my mom, you know, like things like that. I don't know, like in an environment, I don't know what exactly is going to happen. So I wonder, do, does any one of you feel a certain way um, in a certain situation or a location? Um, what should people uh, do to, to really show their respect and to really, um, like you said, not not to look at each other differently. I think at least, I think, I think it's a similar, well, you have to decide too, and it doesn't need to be one answer. It's like, how do you want to, sometimes you can play with it. You know, you could like say boo to people if they're staring at you. You know, there, there are ways to get playful. I went through a period after my injuries where I I needed to get into this. So I started wearing like really short shorts and I my hair was like out to here. And I just started getting playful with my, I saw my body as this thing that I'm not, I, I am my, my body's mine, but I'm not just my body and I can work with it. I can play with it and treat it as sort of a raw material. That was very therapeutic for me and maybe helpful for others or at least entertaining to watch on some level. But anyway, that, I just offer that is for you. Now you're in the role to, in, this, in this way of the disabled person in the way, in the way we're talking in this community. You know, you can for yourself. Mm. What do you want to do with that? Do you want to teach these folks something? Say, hey, I noticed you're staring. Ever, you never ever met an Asian person. I mean, you, you can take it on yourself to teach folks. You could take it on yourself to shock folks. You can do anything you want. I mean, the first thing is to realize your freedom and your agency in this. Mm-hmm. And that may, that may be a little pat because there may be times where you don't feel safe. Um, I don't want to just be glib about that. But anyway, one, one, one beginning of a response would be to say, find a way to own it and play with it or work with it or use it yourself. That's a, a, a comment. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you guys think? It's so exhausting, though. I mean, I, I imagine um, uh, you, you coming back from that trip, and I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't want to project onto you, but I'm, I'm thinking of, for me, um, being in public sometimes is just exhausting when you are the spectacle. Um, and I, I actually had similar phases, BJ, with the... Uh, 
uh, for me, it was just like fashion and, um, and uh, my hair, I like bleached my hair all white for like a decade and um, uh, just wore the most outrageous sweaters. I don't know, just like, just like, almost like, tr like trying to um, become a spectacle before someone could make me the spectacle, I guess. Um, so that definitely resonates with me. Um, but in terms of if we were to flip it and think about the starers um, and think about that, that um, positioning, um, I think, mm -hmm. I think that, um, the, the thing about being the one difference in the room, I guess, or the, I, this, the visual difference in the room, um, is that, um, you were, you're, this sounds so obvious, but like, um, your perspective is the only one of its kind. And then everybody else is sort of operating from the default perspective. Um, and I think sometimes, um, that's so natural. If you're used to being of the majority and you're used to being the person that blends in, it's so natural to just sort of stay in that mindset or in that space. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it, it takes intentionality and, and um, yeah, it takes like a, a decision to, to decide to think about a, the perspective that's not your own. Um, and to think about what it feels like to be that person in, in, the, in the room. Um, so I'm thinking even beyond staring. I mean, I think hopefully staring is something that we can catch ourselves um, and stop ourselves from doing. But um, even just thinking about, um, for me, so I'm, I'm operating in, a, I'm in a wheelchair. And so I'm moving through a room like two feet lower than most people in the room. Um, and so I think even um, sometimes it's really easy to like look over me or talk over me. So if I'm in a big room, um, um, it would mean, it means a lot to me. And I notice the people who think about um, what I would be experiencing in that room. So somebody who like um, kneels down to talk to me so that we're eye level or grabs a chair to talk to me so that we're eye level is a person who's thinking about what I'm experiencing in that moment a little bit, you know, and, and mo a lot of people don't have to take that extra thought and think about it. You know, it, if you are used to moving through a space as the, as the norm, um, a lot of times you've never had to think about, take that extra step to think about it. So I guess for me, um, that would be one thing is just to notice the people that are in a space with you and just take an extra step to think how they might be experiencing that space with you. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's super helpful and just fascinating. Um, and for me, it just, uh, I, I'm learning more about myself, my environment, because, you know, I went from going to high school in Maine, where literally there were five Asian people in that town of 20,000 people to Boston that no, I haven't felt like I've been noticed by anyone anywhere for 20 years. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, like people can pick me out. So, um, Gustavo, you are, I know you have a ton of questions. I hate to call you out. So come on it's your opportunity all right well i was letting you know every everyone have their say um i'm i have a question for rebecca and dj um i don't know if we need to maybe rebecca you can for the audience who haven't read the the book um you spoke a lot about the medical model and the social model the the first question that i have there is is there, is there anything in the literature? Is there like a third model that's, you know, being proposed or, or are those the two major ones that, that are 
being worked on and, and thought about? Oh, that's a great question. There are other models. Um, and now you're, I feel like I should have studied before this. I feel like I'm like um, defending my dissertation again. Um, there are other models and um, I'm trying, Allison Kafer is, uh, is a disability scholar who is, has proposed um, a more complicated model that has to do with um, social and political experiences in the world as well that kind of brings that into the fold. Um, and then there are also models that think about disability um, and bring in the sensory experience of disability more, which also reminds me a bit of some of the stuff that I've heard BJ talk about um, in terms of um, just what it means to live in a body and experience the world, even just through one sense or um, kind of thinking through um, like um, I'm, I'm thinking about um, an image um, describing um, a disabled person who doesn't doesn't communicate through language, um, but has the ability to kind of um, wiggle a hand. And if you put a paintbrush in that person's hand and put a paper up against that and see what's created from that from that expression, um, thinking about like. Um, just thinking about the human body in a different, in a different way and with different hierarchies in mind. Um, and I don't remember the name of that one, but yes, there are other models. I think that the, um, um, the medical and social model, one of its strengths is it's, it's the, or one of the strengths of those models is the simplicity of them. They kind of break things down in a really black and white way. Um, and that's also its limitation because of course, um, real experience is always tangled in between those two spaces. Um, I don't know if it'd be helpful really quickly. I can just talk briefly about the social and medical models because I don't know if whoever's listening would be familiar with that. Um, but the very, very basic um, kind of bottom building blocks of a lot of disability studies has to do with the difference between the medical model and the social model. Um, and the medical model would be what we um, have a kind of a more typical way of thinking about the body in um, this place and time, um, which is to think about disabled bodies as being um, the individual problem that needs to be fixed um, and <clears throat> really focusing on um, that body that needs to be overcome in some way. And then the, the social model thinks about the experience of that disabled body and looks at um, disabling experiences more than the disabled body. So thinking about um, <clears throat> the environments that create moments um, of pain and suffering for disabled body. So the difference, like a really simple um, example would be um, a woman sitting at, uh, at the bottom of a flight of stairs and the medical model would look at that scene and say, oh, that poor disabled woman and her broken body. And um, the social model would look at that scene and say, oh, well, like, why would we not build a ramp in an elevator and then problem solved? Um, so that is a really simple beginning way to think about the difference between focusing on um, a broken um, body that is made less because it's disabled and then thinking about these environments and um, social understandings of bodies disabling experiences. Um, but yes, Gustavo. So then, so then the complicated question that I have from there is this. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I wanna hear from both of you, but as you know, B, 
BJ, as a doctor, right? Where can we say that the medical model that Rebecca just described is correct? Like what's worth salvaging there? If we turn and say, wouldn't it be great if we could cure all diseases and then feeling so miserably with seeing people with disabilities as a defect that has to be fixed versus something that can contribute positively to the world? Like where, where's yeah. the connect happening there? Well, so right on. So each of these, I've heard each of these models and, and others are, are helpful, right? But to a point, and they, by definition, you, you know, you define, you pick a word for, or a construct, you're, you're by definition abandoning other words and other constructs. So a part of it, part of the trick here is for also understand that these are constructs that are invented that help us make sense, but they're approximations of reality. I mean, in this way, so medicine in the medical model has something to offer. It's not an entirely bankrupt thing or it's a useful thing because it turns out sometimes uh, a disability is a problem and feel and the experience is problematic. And sometimes there's actually a fix for it. So like if I, if there were some breakthrough that allowed people to sprout limbs, would I do that? You know, it's an interesting question. I wonder how you'd answer it, Gustavo. I'm not so sure. I certainly wouldn't leap at it. Depends how functional those limbs are, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and if I had to give up the lessons I've learned by being in this body. Um, but my, I guess my put answer your question more narrowly. Sometimes, you know, we don't have to spin disability out of, sometimes it's freaking problematic, just like life in general. And when there's a fix, I'm all for it. The problem with the medical model is not that some is, is what it does when you can't, when you're not fixable or don't want to be fixed. That's where the medical model breaks down and abandons people. And that's its major flaw is it substitutes its model for, for its all encompassing reality and then therefore leaves so many people out. And this is where people later in life in the palliative care and hospice, I, I this, my fields are sort of correctives to, to swoop in and offer a place to hold people who are falling through these cracks, these structural cracks, who are no longer relevant. If my problem's no longer fixable, then I'm not really relevant to the medical model. So, so the work in palliative care is meant to expand that and to link to other ways of seeing and other models. But to a narrow, sorry, a narrow answer to your question, Gustavo, is medical model is great because sometimes things are fixable and I, I might want that. That's okay. Just the problem is don't substitute any one of these constructs for a total view on reality. That's where, that's where it all breaks down. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I, I think um, I'm alive because the medical model said, hey, there's like this tumor wrapped around your spine and we can fix that, you know, like, thank God. Um, I'm really grateful for that. I think to me, yeah, I would totally agree. I think to me, it, um, the medical model, if, if the idea is that we will do anything in order to make your body look as close to this imagined ideal or normal default body as possible at the expense of joy or fulfillment or um, being able to um, be present in your life. I mean, I think sometimes the medical model takes that as the, uh, takes the goal of that ideal or normal body as the obvious goal. Um, when there are so many different parts of being a human being. Um, and for me, I, I suppose 
Um, if my parents had been like more rigorous and like made physical therapy my number one priority as a child, and I had spent, you know, like a full-time job in physical therapy as a child, I might have a little bit more mobility than I have now. I'm kind of glad that that wasn't what my childhood was, you know, like I, I'm kind of glad that I got to like roll around in the mud and, um, and like make magic potions with my siblings and, and have that freedom. Um, and, and I, you know, I get along in my chair pretty well. So, um, I guess I, 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 and I love the way that you described that BJ, that like, anytime we adopt one of these models, we're also losing other, other things, right? Like they're only there. It's just almost like, it's almost like a pair of glasses that we can pick up just to look at something in a new way. Not as if that's the only, only yeah. way we should ever look at it. Yeah. And that's the human, that's so much the human capacity and potential is that we we can't change the world, but we can change how we look at it you know, in, in sort of simple terms. And you can switch out your glasses, but on a different lens. And I think we'd all benefit from realizing that each of us has that, has that power. We can look at reality through various lenses and we can change those lenses. They're alterable. We should, that's the, again, the hazard of substituting any of these models with a totality of, 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 of reality. But that's the, that's the bigger problem. So there's a common theme in all of your writing, as I noticed recently, and Gustavo brought it up as well. I would love to hear your thoughts on this, which is design thinking and the exercise of imagination. Um, that's a commonality and it just uh, very fascinating to me. I, that's what I was, I was actually taking notes, BJ, on the second time or third time that I watched your TED talk, because I just like can't get enough of it. I like, um, I'm making my, my partner watch it with me again later this week. Um, but that was what stood out to me so much too, is like um, the imagination part and the play and the creativity um, that I think with death and disability, um, it, there is sort of this acceptance, like there's only one way to look at it. And it's, and it, that that is a terrifying, horrifying thing that I'm going to do my best to pretend like doesn't exist. And then that's it. But it's also an inevitable part of life. And when, so when we bring that in to the center and we allow that to be a part of our existence, um, I think that there is so much untapped potential for mm -hmm. rethinking the way we interact with the world and how we see ourselves and what we let ourselves experience. Um, and in like the tiniest, tiniest example and the most like tangible, tiny example, um, we see that with disability and curb cuts or closed captioning. Like as soon as we think, well, what would it be like to actually bring a disabled body into the middle of this experience and think about how we could in include that experience mm -hmm. in the center, suddenly we're like, oh, there's other ways to engage. There's other ways to, um, to participate in this world. And now not only does the wheelchair user get to use that curb cut, but so do parents with strollers and people on bikes. And um, not only do um, hearing impaired people get to see what's on happening on the screen or participate in the screen, but now so can people who are like at work and don't want the video to project into the workplace and have anyone know that they're watching the video, you know, like there's just so many, um, places where I think we can open up and, um, and have more people 
participating in more ways. And how fun is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I, so I, I, totally feel that in the things that I've heard you talk about, um, BJ, and I think that's so exciting. I think it's a really exciting place to be. Me too. I, I, I get, I, I find it thrilling. I mean, I mean, some of the thoughts that have helped me and that touch on design thinking, but also touch on modeling, Gustavo, which is our sort of structural ways to look at things. Um, you know, it's been very helpful for me to see my disability and every aspect of my life as variations on a, on a theme, rather than that we're uniquely having different experiences. Okay, we might have different experiences, but there is a commonality underneath all of it. And I really think it's very useful to ping between the individual and the shared and the unique and the, and the shared. So, um, and also just making sure to craft a worldview that includes you and everybody else in it and anything that might happen to you. So seeing disability as a variation on a theme, like Faye, if you, are, you may not qualify as a disabled person, but we can, in a design thinking way, we can reframe the issue. It's not disability, that's a word. What is the issue? Maybe the issue is vulnerability, like we talked earlier. There's something that everyone shares, whether they're willing to admit it or not, uh, is a different story. But some, through some simple reframing, you can find yourself uh, in very rich territory and very inclusive territories. Mm-hmm. And that is a creative exercise, finding words, creating words. Um, so I find it like, you know, it's been very helpful to see this as a variation on a theme that we all go through. Um, it's also very helpful to see things in, on a spectrum. So it's not like disabled people over here, able-bodied people over there you know, again, wanting to f- sort of demand sort of inclusion here, aren't we all on a spectrum? There's no independent person. You can be relatively independent, but there's no one in the world who needs no one. And that's a really important refinement. When I, I used to be independent and then I became disabled. And so I had, the feeling was I had to leave one world and go to another, but that's, that's just not accurate. And it's not very inspiring either. The truth is we're all in various modes of uh, dependencies throughout our lives. We move on the spectrum that every single one of us is on. So these are sort of creative ways of revisioning things and welcoming more people into the mix. And then the third piece that's related to this is is coming to appreciate what, um, how important in the human experience uh, uh, limitations are. So you start looking at us as a species. I love thinking about myself, comparing myself to my dog. You know, if, she, if you threw Maisie and me out in the woods, who's gonna win that one? You know, uh, you know, we humans, we need clothing. We need all sorts of things. We're not really, we're not a very impressive species, but for our minds, but for our, our perspectives and our ability to think creatively. That's where we as a species rise, not out of having four limbs versus two or whatever. Um, so thinking about the, the basic human experience as being one responding to limitations and then all of a sudden disability becomes a spark, something that gets people or their creative juices flowing. You might follow the language around disability. You'd think all disabled people are just sort of in pain and sort of in a corner and can't do anything. Of course, the truth is because they've had to work, find workarounds and workthroughs, they are also incredibly creative. They may not use that language or think of themselves in that way. But anyway, my long-winded way of saying here is from a design point of view, as well as modeling, is seeing limitations as essential to the creative process. And therefore, if not loving them, at least appreciating them. Um, And that often opens up a lot of creative juice for myself and others.
I love the word limitation as it relates to creativity. I think um, it, I, the, the first time that that clicked for me was uh, there's an art teacher at our school um, who did this exercise with the other teachers um, where he had us draw, um, he, he had us draw a cat and he gave us a minute to draw a cat. And so everybody is like getting the whiskers just right. And then he was like, okay, now draw the cat in 30 seconds. And so everybody's like trying to do it faster and faster. And then he gave us 10 seconds, five seconds, and then three seconds. And a lot of times what you'll find is like something between five and three seconds, suddenly there's like this amazing weird looking cat that was created out of that limitation um, where it wouldn't have been before. And so then you start thinking about things like poetry. Poetry is a form that only exists because of limitation. We decide that actually we want this number of syllables and we want this rhythm and, and we want this structure. And suddenly there's a poem that wouldn't exist if we were like, just put all the words wherever you, you know, full access to um, however you wanna use language. So, you know, and the same is with music. Like when we bring limitation into our experience of the world, that's when like new things that never would have been considered can blossom and bloom. So I love that word limitation and reframing what that what that can mean. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I, I love what, what everyone said that I, I tend to use the word constraints instead of limitation, just because I like to think of them as a lot of them are imagined. We think they're there, but they're not really there. So what can we actually push through? What can we actually work work around? Um, in my, in my business, in my industry, um, working with high-end clientels, architects, designers, I see a profound lack of imagination for various reasons. And I think that a lot of it has to do with it's cultural, right? We are champions of industry, not of craft, even like to think otherwise. It's more, better, faster, cheaper, as opposed to mastery and how can I do this better and how can I take the time to make something that's truly special or imaginative or you know why can't our kitchen shelves come down to us why do we have to go up to them like it doesn't seem like that hard of a problem to solve why has why has nobody done it yet it, it, to me it's cultural it's it's a cultural limitation that we just put on ourselves because we've always climbed the step ladder to go get it yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that spark. I mean, I think, you know, you guys are reminding me of one of the favorite moments. I, it hasn't happened in a while, but invariably when I talk to kids, kids are really interesting to watch around disability. Um, but um, just to kind of spark and, and how we all use this normalcy as a crutch to hide behind and, and how, how it squashes creative thinking, just like you illustrated Gustavo. Um, I love when kids, I love these moments. So a kid will ask me, don't you miss having two hands? You know, and I will, I, 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 I hope it happens today when this happens, but uh, I'll say, well, yeah, sure, I mean, yeah, two hands was cool. Um, I, that was, I mean, yeah, I missed my hand, but uh, don't you miss having three? You know, and invariably, something that comes, some kids are saying like, what? You know, like I'm nuts. But sometimes a kid or an adult will get, the, will get the point. The point is like, what's your frame of reference here? 
you know, and again, we have the potential, we have the ability to contextualize. We can say what the frame of reference is. We can make ourselves as normal as apple pie or as abnormal as whatever, you know, just through our constructs. We have that freedom as human beings. And so I, I love that charge to people. Don't you, don't, Faye, aren't you just, you must be bereft that you don't have six limbs, you poor thing. You know, like, I think it's just a very useful reason, way to get you out of all the assumptions that go in and get in the way of creative thinking. Yeah, I read that uh, in an article somewhere. I just, I love that. And especially I couldn't just imagine being myself in that classroom, kids just being shocked with their mouth open and just don't know what to say. Um, it's incredible. So yeah, Gustavo, I'm, you're, I know you're bubbling with like all of these thoughts and ideas. You're so energetic with me like a week ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Am I not being energetic now? No, I love it. We, we had this little plan of uh, Gustavo has such incredible questions. Uh, he was like, anything you're afraid to ask, I can ask the questions for you. <laughs> hasn't worked out so well. Um, yeah, but this is, this is really amazing. I, I know I booked 75 minutes in case there's any delay and we still have a few minutes to wrap up and to respect everybody's time. Um, you know, I, I still have a question, which is, I know that, you know, people, content creators ask me sometimes and, you know, to be quite honest, like, for example, BJ, when other people interview you on, including NPR and, and, and all that, I, you know, like when people ask you to repeat your origin story and like the day after, to be honest, like I started to feel like I felt a little offended. I know I'm projecting my own feelings again, but, you know, I felt like it would be wouldn't it be nice or appropriate to actually check with the person and to say how I would like to be introduced? And maybe, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. Yeah. I have a mixed feelings around it. I'm on the one hand, especially, you know, for me, I, I'm trying to be out in the world on behalf of issues around suffering and illness and death and, and maybe shifting healthcare and some other things. So I, I'm out there on behalf of issues. And I have to realize that part of what's part of why people will listen to me is has something to do with my story, has something to do with this body, that I've lived some of the things I'm talking about, et cetera. And so I have to I accept that it's part of the fair that people need to know the story. It's a way into what can be really hard and quickly abstract constructs. So fine. Oh, so I, okay. Um, you know, I don't really mind so much as that it unfortunately ends up, can end up just sucking so much wind that we don't get to the things that I'm trying to get to. This is on behalf of some other things. Um, so sometimes I get a little upset that it, it's just a question that's been asked a gazillion times. I don't mind being asked. I, I mind when the interviewer just stays there, you know, that's where, that's where they're um, and I need to get a little bit better about commanding that. I'm still feel novice with media. And so I just basically respond to whatever people are asking. I, I think I need to get a little bit more politically savvy and, and answer the question I want them to ask me, not the one they ask me. Um, so, but, but back to your question. Yeah, it's annoying to a point. Um, but the point is that it ends up interrupting or getting in the way of not facilitating, getting in the way of bigger conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So, so BJ, how, how have you, so my, my question that, you know, Faye was prodding me to ask, but I think you've, you've answered and you've answered it already in many ways, but how, how do you, you, as this master of, of creating these spaces, of holding these spaces for people with surrounding death, illness, et cetera, have you, have you used your, have you gone back to, you say, your 13-year-old self, your 15-year-old self, and, and use that as a way to help, you know, able-bodied people better understand or open up or project less as to what it's like for, for you and what you have to teach and, you know, bring to the table? Interesting. You know, I haven't per se, but as you say that, I do think, and I haven't sort of named it, but I think one of the things that qualifies me to do the work I'm doing is I'm, I'm straddling a lot of worlds, like the medical world with the, the medical and the social models, for example, or, uh, you know, pad of care is a, something of a misfit in healthcare. I'm, so I'm always stumbling on the periphery. I feel like I'm straddling worlds. And I'm a, I feel like in this way, I'm a, uh, an usher. I sort of link, link things in some ways. And I think maybe what qualifies me in, in this way with patients and families is not only that I have, I've come close to death and I've lost body parts, that I've been a patient, that I've been in the bed, as I say. But as you say that, I realize it also calls that I had life before being in the bed. And I, I think it's both, that I have a line of sight on both of those uh, experiences that is is what what helps me do my work. So I haven't thought about it until you just said that, Gustavo, Gustavo per se. But I think I will start using that a little bit more. I think I naturally just do that without thinking about it. But I'm going to get, take your question to heart and, and ponder it some more because I do think I, I, I'm I'm qualified for these conversations because I'm disabled, and I'm qualified for these conversations because I've been able-bodied. It's both. Wow. Ah, I just, uh, this is incredible. I'm so grateful. And um, so I, I don't want this to wrap up as a project manager for over a decade, you know, when a meeting ends at 515 could easily carry on. But with that said, and respecting your time and uh, I don't think this is participation. This is like more of a, you know, for me, this is coaching and learning um, as well. So any last thoughts, things that you, you wish that we brought up, but didn't, um, well, I don't have any, I, oh, sorry. You go ahead. Cause I was just going to say, I don't have any, except mostly I'm just really, I think you all, like everyone on this screen is so cool. I'm so glad to connect with you. I just, this is really, really fun for me. So that's all I was going to say. Next time, or if we can do it now, great. But in your book, Rebecca, you, like when you described your early childhood of like playing in the mud and it was, this is, for me, this is not an exaggeration, okay? But I read Dante, right? I've read a lot of religious and spiritual works. To me, that was the most, um, my childhood was not like that, but it felt like the most believable description of what heaven could be like right? If it, if it existed, I'm not religious per se, but it was really, and, and so when you look back on those moments, like, how do you feel 
that you could bring more of that into the world around you? That That's my question. Uh, my heart is, um, is doing some swelling and breaking. I, it's really, really, um, man, I feel a lot of tenderness around that. Um, and I love that you connected so much with that moment because to me, um, when I, when I read the book out loud, um, for readings or when I did the audio book, um, there's a line in the book when I talk about those memories and I talk about how, um, how sacred that space was for me and those memories are for me and how, um, I'll never be able to get back to that exact space. Um, and that's one of the moments that I like always cry in when I read the book. Um, because, uh, and I never really thought of it as being sort of like a, a heavenly space, but I, I have used the word sacred and I, I, man, the way that you are, I'm describing that is making me feel a lot of things. Um, so I just, just the fact that like to have you read my book is really special. So thank you for that. And to begin with, uh, but your question, um, yeah, I mean, that would be the hope, right? I want, I want us all to be able to be in the space where we're able to relish our bodies. And, and I feel like so much of the time, what we're doing is either ignoring them or trying to force them to fit into something we think they should be or using them recklessly um, as opposed to just um, breathing in and out and feeling our lungs fill and putting our hands in the mud and watching them cake up on our palms and not worrying what the mud looks like to other people, right? Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know how do we call that forward. I mean, like, um, <clears throat> I think telling our stories and getting to share the moment like we're having right now and then sharing that with someone else and, and remembering what that feels like and, um, and, and the, the momentum behind that, I hope creates more moments like that for people. Um, I think that it, I think that it's, it's like a combination of, of um, an individual thing and the way we think about the world moment to moment, like, um, I'm even thinking of like earlier today, um, being on, um, the bed with my four month old son and he's like rolling around and like farting <laughs> and, you know, he's just like slobbering all over his face. And I'm just like studying that, like, look at you, look at you. Um, just like eating up this moment of being alive in your body. Um, so I think part of it is like individual, but I think there's something we need to do for each other too, like creating that space for each other. Um, that's important. Um, it can't be something just that we, that we intention for ourselves, but it's something to be mindful of for ourselves and to build for each other, um, and create space for each other. And I hope that the more that we share, I don't know, to me, storytelling is like my thing. So I, I hope that I, um, can keep telling that story and sharing it and, and calling it forth for us. Um, mostly I just thank you for bringing that moment up for us right now. Cause that, that means a lot to me to hear you and the way you experienced that. Yeah. So beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> this is so, uh, Gustavo, you're supposed to cry. You're not supposed to make Rebecca cry. Remember? <laughs> Plan again. <laughs> uh, it's so 
it's so lovely. I mean, little things, uh, Rebecca, following you on Instagram and um, watching all of BJ's video and one, one of which I forgot, BJ said, I love my body. And that moment, an hour later, I had a call with my VA, Anna, who designed all these beautiful artworks by my mom, like printed them on um, dresses. And I literally found myself say this for the last time because all Chinese uh, friends and family tell me like, Faye, you have such, your arms are so big from Taekwondo and swimming. Oh my God, they're so big in the documentary. And I'm like, I'm 120 pounds. I mean, how big are they really? And so I stopped where I literally never wore tank tops for a long time. And then just in that moment, I just said, Anna, order three of them. I'm going to start wearing them. And if people ever comment on this again, I was like, you know what? I love my arms. They're mine and you don't have to love them. So this is this is my new look now. And it felt, I can't believe in like 37 years, it just felt so liberating mm. to say that and to feel that way and not to, you know, to feel that I love my body. You know, I I can, I love looking at it in front of the, the mirror with or without clothes, clothing. It's just such a, it's such a wonderful feeling. So thank you guys for, for like changing my life um, on that as well. So. And I think that's right, Faye. I think I think that is I think that is powerful. Like you see other people doing that. Mm -hmm. It's like you didn't even realize that you. I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like Go you ahead. see yeah. somebody else doing it, um, and you're like, oh, I could join that. Like I could do that too. Um, I maybe didn't even realize what the barrier was before, but when I see somebody else doing it, there is something really powerful with that. That mm -hmm. is that is real. That is real. I felt that too. It's awesome. I can't wait to do this again. And I, I love the fact that we're so open and um, I'm really grateful. I feel so privileged and uh, I really hope to bring more of these conversations forward. This episode of the Face World podcast is brought to you by Face World LLC, our marketing service agency created for independent creators and businesses. We offer website development, video production, marketing mentorship to people who want to tell better stories, level up, and create a profitable brand. Face World podcast team are chief editor and producer Herman Ceballos, associate producer Adam Leffert, social media and content manager Rose De Leon transcript editor Alina Ahmidova, and lastly myself, the creator and host of FaceWorld. Thank you so much for listening.